What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Long Game Podcast hosted by Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore. In each episode, you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to the lives of millennials and other young professionals. Our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short, bite-sized episodes. Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore are the co-founders and financial planners at All Street Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and Trayton are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of All Street Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered advice. Please consult with your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan. Welcome back to another episode of The Crossroads, and for listeners, welcome back to The Long Game Podcast. This week, we are joined by Tyler Olson, who's the founder of Olson Consulting, which is a financial planning firm that specializes in working with medical professionals, and today we're going to be diving into some student loan things, some college planning and career things, and I'm excited for today's episode, but before we dive into it, um, why don't we start with um, just telling the listeners a little bit about yourself, who you help, and also I'm curious a little bit about Twitter and the impact that you're making on there because I think that's super super unique and it's helping a lot of people and I think more people should know about it. Thanks for having me guys. Uh, it's nice to talk about these important topics. Um, yeah, so I, I've been in the financial industry since 2005. Um, I worked as a you know, financial advisor for a traditional style uh, investment management firm for 10 years. And it was after that that I realized that I wanted to have a bit more control of like who I served and how I served them. Um, and, uh, you know, founded Olson Consulting, uh, which is just me. So it's not like a big company or anything, but uh, started the registered investment advisor uh, in 2018. Um, and I have been specifically focusing on those in medicine and physicians in particular, um, I got to know the financial challenges that uh, physicians face uh, relative to uh, student debt. The length of time in which their training uh, prevents them from making uh, money above 60,000 a year for you know, three to nine years, depending on which type of medicine they pursue. Um, and then of course, there's also time freedom challenges that they face even after they're done with training in terms of uh, what they call call responsibilities, contract issues, just a lot of things that relate to like how to improve their quality of life. And I felt like if I could focus on helping people make good financial decisions around these things, that I could, I could add, add some value to them and help them to lead more productive and fulfilling lives. Uh, the Twitter uh, work I do is like the educational arm of my business. Um, <clears throat> I try to keep it as separate from my paid side as much as possible uh, because I want, I, I realize that there's so many people in medicine and not who just need help with some, with answering some financial questions here and there, and then they're good to go. Like they don't have to like, they don't have to engage with a financial planner to a full scale. Sometimes they just have a couple of questions that they need help with. And so I started really focusing on making myself approachable and available and kind and responsive on Twitter. Um, and so that has been a really good way to help a lot more people than I could ever do on a paid level. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm answering a lot of direct messages on there. It's probably, I don't know. I probably get like 
I don't know, probably like between 50 and a hundred messages a week. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. And I think like, I mean, I always tell people you're probably one of the few advisors I would hundred percent refer anybody to. And I know you refer people back to us, but like, I don't know if anybody does a better job of being authentic on social media. I think when, after a little bit of knowing you, I'm pretty sure it was trading. I was texting. I was like, dude, I don't know about this Tyler dude. He's either the nicest person in the world or he's like kind of fake on Twitter. Nice. And then I realized like, wow, you're actually one of the nicest people and most authentic, like just your, how, how you've built the community and become so integrated in it is like something I don't know. I've seen any other advisor do. It's super impressive. That's kind of you to say, you know, it's, it's easy to like, or I should say it's difficult to be able to discern uh, authenticity genuineness, you know, without, you know, time and getting to know people. Um, the only way I've been able to prove it is just over time. Yeah. Um, just never, ever trying to like bait people with some information, but be like, oh, and now if you want to learn more, you know, let's sign up. You know, I'm just like, I've, I've had, I mean, I had the privilege of being in this business for long enough that I'm not like scrounging for work. And that's a big piece of it. But yeah. that, means, but that I'm trying to use that in a way so that when I talk with someone that's just looking for help, I'm not thinking like, now how can I get them to become a client? Like, I, I don't even care. And like, I think that that factor eventually comes into play and people are like, oh yeah, this is just where I can get some answers answers to my questions. And that's what I wanted. So, you know, so far it's working out pretty well and I hope that it's helpful to people. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I, you definitely show your authenticity and you answer questions. And I think you, everybody can tell that you aren't trying to really just get business from there. I think it's cool that you focus so much on the residents and their life, because like, if you really think about it, that would not be the best place for your business to spend the time. Like if you were solely on your business, you'd be like, all right, doctors already practicing, making 400 plus thousand dollars. Like, great. That's where I can make the most money. But you actually spend the time with the people who need the most help and have the least amount of money, which I find to be very cool. You know, it's funny. A few months ago, I had an attending physician message me and they're like, hey, I really would like to work with a financial planner, like pay them and everything. And I know that you just work with residents. So I was just wondering if you have any recommendations. <laughs> and I kind of felt like, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Because <laughs> um, that is who I work with. So I've actually had to like reframe how I communicate because I do need to make a living. And I also try to mention that too periodically to be like, hey, I'm not some like, saint here <laughs> like some people are like oh he just gives and gives and gives and i'm like well yeah i mean but there is a financial component to it people see you and you guys see that people see you out there helping and they see like what your personality is like and the way you communicate and all that it's a it's an interview it's a long-term interview and yeah. like and they come to you when they're ready so there's definitely a financial component and i've had to <laughs> I've had to change that up because I just said, well, actually that is my paid business. What you see of me, this is just because people that are in school and people that are residents, like, like they, they have big decisions to make. And there's a big segment of the financial industry that promotes themselves in such a way that they're like, oh yeah, like we'll give you advice and you don't even have to pay for it. Cause like we're, you know, you guys and us, like we're flat fee advisors so they can feel it coming out of their checking account when they work yeah. with us. But like, life insurance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're like, well, no, I didn't have to pay anything. Well, you know, so it's, uh, I, I want to be able to like help people who don't want to like commit to such a thing until they're ready. You know, whether, whether that's with a, 
any type of financial advisor. So yeah, anyway. I, always, I always talk about it too, of like content is the way for us to learn. It's less to think better. It's also a way for us to get clients, but then, you know, all of us care about impact. I mean, I know you, I, I know trade and I feel the same way. Impact is huge for us and we can only work with a certain number of clients. And there's a certain segment of people who are never going to work with us no matter what, because they're DIYers. And so now we get to increase our impact by adding value for those people. Like I always get surprised how many people that comment back, like how helpful my content is. And they're like, I just, I'm never going to need to work with an advisor, but you've given me a ton that have helped me for free. And I think that's cool just to be able to make your impact more than just the people that pay you at the same time. Um, But anyways, let's dive into the topic for today. So I think what what we're going to try to talk about is like how to decide whether like pursuing your passion or, you know, this educational cost is going to be worth it for the job that you're going to have. So I'm going to let you kind of start diving into what you think about that. I think that young people are being asked to make some really big decisions before they have all the knowledge of the impact of those decisions. Um, And uh, there's, a lot of things that I think that should or could change in the future. But what I tend to just go back to is the reality of today. So what do we have? We have tuition costs, which are rising. And if you don't come from a family situation where there's money that can pay for it, you have debt decisions that you're making. And that is, um, it's tough because the long-term financial outcome it's hard to project when you're 16, 17, 18 years old. And so like decisions about undergrad, graduate school, uh, doing any sort of post-bac program, uh, depending on if you're gonna go into a graduate program that needs, where you need to supplement your education that you didn't get in undergrad, uh, that's all money going out the door. And, you know, I think for a lot of, you know, most of us, we wanna be able to, we don't wanna center our life on something that is really meaningful to us. Yeah. Um, and so, and that's, that's good that you want to do that. Um, but at the same time, like you mentioned the phrase, pursue your passion, it can be a trap because you might love what you're doing, but if you're now bogged down by a really surprising amount of debt or lower income than you were anticipating, the fire of that passion can get snuffed out really quickly due to stress. And because you're focusing on other things, or you may even have to get supplementary employment in order to, in order to service the debt, um, or to service your life expenses, because your income for whatever your career is, is just not sufficient. And I mainly think about uh, people in social services, therapy, and teachers. Um, I do, you know, working with uh, physicians, I mean, there are some specialties that make under $100,000 in some parts of the country. Uh, definitely people in family medicine, pediatrics, any doctors that work with children are not paid nearly as much as you think they are. Hmm. Um, and so all these segments, they have, they, they, they take center stage in my mind when I think about this discussion, because, you know, undergrad is expensive as it is. Uh, you can make choices and go to community college. If you, if you can work that out, um, I think that's a good thing to consider, but, um, I just, when, I'm, when, I, when I think about this topic, I'm trying to balance between encouraging people to do what they will find meaningful in their life, yeah. but to plan and to p- kind of project what the impact is going to be. Because 
you know, it's, it's not great, obviously, to have student debt, but it is really, really not great to be surprised by it and to be surprised what interest accumulation does to debt if it's growing, like, like graduate loans. The moment you take out a disbursement, it starts accruing interest. So you're in school, not making money, and the 25000 that you just took out, you, every day, it's growing. And like a lot, I, I've seen so many people that get done with school and they're like, wait a minute, I thought I borrowed this amount of money. Yeah. And like, and they don't think about like, you know, it's tuition costs, you know, books and, you know, living expenses, um, a lot of like health insurance decisions. If you can get on your parents' plan, if you have parents that like are financially supportive, that's a good option. But there's a lot of students that don't have that. And so they either have to be lucky enough to be in a state that offers Medicaid for students which is a good option. But if you don't, then you're likely stuck with your school's health insurance. Yeah. And I've seen it being like, it's like 400 bucks a month, which yeah. is so stupid. Like these young people, they're like, they're healthy. Like they don't, come on. It, so all these things are things that I met, as I mentioned, like 16, 17, 18 year olds, they don't even know what they don't know. Yeah. I, so, yeah. I, I think it's interesting because I think there's the balance of, you know, you talked about some of those professions like, you know, teachers, for example. And I don't think it, we're, we're trying to say that don't be a teacher. I think what part of it is important is like, like I went to Butler. Going to Butler and it being $62,000 a year to come out and make $40,000 a year is like, it would take you six years of 100% of your pre-tax income to pay off those student loans. So it's kind of like the balance of if you want to pursue that route, well, what's the best route to get there? It's probably not the most expensive one. Maybe you go to Ball State and you go to Ball in Indiana and, you know, that's $12,000 in state. And now you're like, well, hey, great. Okay, that's one times my income. I can manage it. And sure, there's other ways for teachers of like forgiveness if you work at like a D-level school in Indiana or, you know, I, I think there's ways around. I think the hard part though, and kind of going back to the passion is if we think about like human history forever, jobs were never passion, right? I mean, it was, it was, you had to work to live. And I mean, farther back, you worked on farms or did stuff outside. And then we go closer. And it's like, even our grandparents, I mean, they were either in the military because they had to be, or they worked more so factory jobs. And then you get to our parents and our parents were like, we saw that. And, you know, well, what we want to do is we want to have a good paying job with benefits provide for our family. So then they did that. And they found these good paying jobs in the office all day. And now I'm coming across like, a lot of people who bring up the idea of like, that just wasn't it for us. Like we thought that money was the thing that our parent, like their parents were missing and money was going to be the thing that brought safety and brought happiness. And now these people in there in their fifties or sixties finishing their career. And I, I recently had a meeting with somebody and they were like, we want to have a lot of money saved. So our kids, after they graduate, can pursue whatever they want. If they want to be an artist, they can do that. If they want to dance, they can do that. If they want to travel the world for a bit, they can do that. And I think when a lot of people hear that, they're like, oh, those are those spoiled rich kids that never had to work a day in their life. And some of that could be true. But then there's the other side of like this family I was talking to is like, we're in a job we hate. We, we, are, we followed the safe route our parents told us to do. Now we're in, let's just throw an example. Like now, we, now we're an accountant. We hate every day of our job but we make too much to leave and do something different. And we still need to provide for our family. I want to make sure my kids don't have to make that choice and can pursue happiness because I feel like my happiness is only time outside of work. And so it's like the, the lenses you view these two stories through 
And, and what the people are trying to provide is very different than like, let me just give you whatever you want and you never have to care about life and never have to work versus I want to provide for you something that I completely regret that happened to me. Ooh. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. And I, I agree. Like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to contribute to messaging that like, you, sh- you know, people should avoid low financial wealth creation jobs because like, I, I know someone who they told me that they're, that they're just so excited. They just finished undergrad and they're so excited that they are now going to get to be a teacher at Chicago public schools. That is yeah. like, she, like her dream. She's so excited about that. And like, I am happy for her. Like, it's really good. She, the, the cost of education to now become a teacher versus a salary, it's not, you know, it's not like an amazing like return on investment, you know, from a financial standpoint, but for her value-based value-wise, she is excited and that's what really matters. So then I think about someone like that who's like, okay, you've got like 80 grand in debt and your income's going to be 60 grand. This is more and more common. And, and the, you know, the scale is even worse. I've seen it. There's a, a therapist who I worked with a couple of years ago and she had 105,000 and she was working for a nonprofit. And that's actually part of where I'm heading is like some for loan forgiveness options, but her salary is $35,000 like in, in that setting. And so people who are in these, you know, in these tracks where they have some choices to make as far as work, they have like, okay, what's your debt? And then what sort of income options do you have for different jobs? And the nonprofit option, the reason I bring that out is because of public service loan forgiveness, PSLF, which is a really good tool to utilize. It gets a lot of bad, uh, it it gets a bad reputation because early on, and people just started applying for it back in 2017 because it just went into, it went into action in 2007. It's a 10 year loan forgiveness program. So many people didn't understand what the requirements were. And so the denial rate was like, it was like over 98%. So a lot of people think that like PSLF is just a fraud. You know, it's just a scam to make you think that you're going to have loan forgiveness. But the reality is that if you work full-time for a nonprofit or government entity, and you are on one of the federal loan income-driven repayment plans, and you make on-time payments for 10 years, then you will get forgiveness of your loans. And the income based is based on your income. So like this person who's making 35,000, like as ridiculous as it is, like in terms of compensation for the important work she's doing, based on her salary, um, her payment for her loans is close to zero. Yeah. Because it's based on discretionary income, right? Yeah. So the way they work it is, you know, the established poverty line, which is for one, for a single person is about $12,000. Right now, you have to pay above the 150% marker, which ends up being around $19,000. So for her, and if you're, if you're married, then it goes up. It's not 12,000. It's like 16,000. If you have kids and it goes up. So for um, her, it's like 100 a month. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, if you think about it, you know, $1,200 a month or $1,200 a year, that's 12,000 out of 105. It's a good deal. Yeah. Those are the setups where it's like, you know, we've come, I've come across clients who it's like, it's not that like they make decent money and it, it, you know, their first year of a public 
you know, a job that would qualify and it's like, okay, you know, it's not that different between what you would pay to pay it off and what the forgiveness would be. And now you have the flexibility to then not have to stay in that job for 10 years or in a job that qualifies for 10 years. So sometimes it becomes nuanced, but I have, so I had a person I know that they, a lawyer wife went to, got her master's and she does like kind of like counseling for a public school. And this guy, his, his dad owned a law firm. It was like, Hey, I'm I like, go here. Like, it's going to be great. It's gonna be worthwhile. He graduated law school with, I think it was like 280,000 in loans and wife graduated with like 140 starts his first job as a lawyer at his dad's firm making $60,000. I'm like, first of all, did your dad encourage you to do this? And then your dad's like, I mean, that, I'd be a little upset about that. I'm going to be honest. I would be a little upset if that's what happened. I did the math with him. So he was just asking me questions. And he's a friend and they would have to pay two grand a month for 30 years to pay off their loans for what they did. And I was just like, I mean, that that's a really nice house that you would have paid off over that time to come in and make $65,000 starting. So I think like a lot of these decisions aren't, don't do it or do it. I just don't think people give the information early to understand whether it's worthwhile or not. And they don't even calculate the loans. They're just like, okay, well, I'm going to get some student aid. Loans will cover it. I don't even think about what that number is, what that payment will be. And I, I think I'm, I've come across this a lot recently too, of like an MBA. You know, I think 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, like MBAs were so valuable. And now we have a ton of people who are like, I don't know what to do with my life. You know, I graduated with a business degree. I started working and I really just don't like what I'm going to do. So I'm going to go back and get my MBA. So then they go back, they pay 50K a year for an MBA to come out and nobody wants to pay an MBA salary. Like you should be making $120,000 for these jobs. And people are like, you know, you have two years of experience. You're not more experienced than somebody I could hire and I could pay them half the amount as you. So now I just spent all this money on education. If you go to a top 10 school, it's probably worthwhile. You get, you know, the whole network of people and, you know, that's kind of the value of the MBA. But like, I just see the transformation of, you know, from 10, 15, 20 years ago, of like educate higher level of education is becoming less valued. Mm. Is that kind of what you're seeing? Yeah. So uh, there's a there's a similar situation with what's called subspecializing in medicine. Yeah. Yep. And in like in for, for example, in pediatrics, as you subspecialize, the income goes down. Wow. If and you need more school. Say again. And you need more time of residency or something for it, probably, right? That's right. So like like a really a really common path is like to go into um, like to go into pediatrics, but then to decide like, Oh, like I'd like to specifically help with kids who have heart problems or to help with like infectious diseases with children or to like any, any part of the body that you can think of that, you know, for adults, you get paid, the doctors get paid more to work on adults. And if you're um, like, if you work with men, you get paid more. So like, like urologists, their compensation relative to OBGYNs is much higher. Yeah. Huh. So it's like, and it's all insurance company driven. It's all, that. that's a whole nother thing. And if I get going on, I'm just going to get mad. <laughs> so let's not do that. Well. Um, but they have to make that decision, you know, but it's, again, it's like, 
it's like, what do they care about? And like, you have to, you have to try to decide like, is the paper that I need to achieve, like to subspecialize in medicine, to work in a, like a subspecialty of pediatrics, you have to go into a fellowship after residency. You cannot not do it and just be like, well, I have the experience now. Can I apply? They're like, no, you have to do it. So, but there are some scenarios in which like with someone who is not sure what they want to do in their career and they're like, well, maybe I'll go get my MBA because then maybe I could do something differently in business. Is it possible to achieve something without the paper? You know, like it's a, it's an investment decision at that point, especially if you don't know what you want to do. Yeah. Um, I have, I have the same issue with, like, I know like kids, they get out of high school and they're like, well, I got to do something. And they like, just automatically, they're like, well, I'm going to go to, you know, my state school. And I, I don't think that that is inherently wrong uh, or unwise, but I do think that the less certain you are of what you're going to do, which is certainly okay for kids yeah. spend as little money as possible on your education because you don't know what you want to do. Like yeah. my, my dad, he's a financial planner. And so it was kind of always open to me that I could do it, but I didn't know that I wanted to do it until a couple of years into college. And I did like, I did like remote learning. Um, so I, it was like a community college remote learning because I was like, I don't want to like, what am I, what am I investing in? I have no idea where the, why I'm spending money. So let me spend as little money as possible. Yeah. I think it's smart to not just like, I'm lost. Let me go think education is going to teach me because like, I mean, I've been through college all with all my friends, unless you're like, I'm going to, I'm in medical school or something where it's driven like in business school, you don't learn what it's like to work in business. You're doing like the most basic textbook things you only know the idea. And then it's like, okay, I'm, I'm studying marketing. And we talk about the four P's and product placement. And then you go work in marketing and you might be doing email copy or like, it's just things that you don't really know. And I've always struggled with the idea of like, well, I don't know. So I'm going to go back to school. And that's, what's going to tell me. It's like, no, you don't know what to do. How about you go find 10 people that, you know, friends of parents, you know, other people that are in jobs that might interest you go pick their brain about what it's like, ask the shadow them for a day or a week, get a little bit of experience to figure out if that would actually be something worthwhile that you would, that you would want to do. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point because I always kind of had the idea of like going to get my MBA after I got my like bachelor's degree and everything. And then um, I had the idea for like starting the business and I kind of just viewed that like as my own MBA, just way less expensive. I was like saving up $20,000 for my nine to five to start the business. And then, I mean, not recommending it for everyone, but I can almost guarantee that I've learned a lot more in the last two years of just like doing business instead of like paying a hundred thousand to go learn about business. And then I still have to figure out how to start the business in the first place. Um, yeah. But I was, I was kind of, oh, go ahead, Tyler. No, continue your thought. I'm curious. Um, I was kind of curious to get your thoughts, kind of what Thomas was talking earlier about, like people like trying to put their kids in a better position. Are you kind of seeing that um, same sentiment from like your clients and just like people you're talking to, like they're trying to one, either plan way ahead and like give them enough savings to be able to like have that flexibility if they want to go to college or is it kind of more like 
negative views towards college. It's like, uh, let's kind of prioritize the family and ourselves right now, and then we'll deal with college at a later point. Or is it just a mixture of everything? It depends on their income. It depends on the, it depends on what their potential, like what their potential or not their potential, what their net savings is. Mm-hmm. Like, like I, like I know a lot of families in medicine that make a really good living now uh, that they're in their like late thirties and they're like, I've got a, even though they're like wondering like how in the world is state school undergrad going to cost $225,000, $250,000 18 years from now. That's insane. And so a lot of people say conceptually, they're like, well, something's got to give. And yeah. the fact is, is that we don't know like what's going to happen. So like anytime as a planner, I'm like, we need to deal with reality. Like we need to re- we need to deal with what we know now. And so I'm like, yeah, it could, it could be different, but maybe it won't. I mean, the reason why tuition keeps going up is because the people that are already in a position to make a lot of money on it also have their hands on the levers. So it's going to be very difficult to be able to wrest that away from them. Um, so and I don't, I don't mean that as like, oh, well, nothing improved. There will be no improvement. I just think like when we're making money decisions, we can't deal with hypotheticals. So like I see families deciding that they're going to fund half of undergrad. And that means like at least $250 a month from birth into a 529 plan. Um, I just did math for a client. It was like, they had two kids. They wanted to find a half a private school. And that was going to be about five, it was going to be a little over $10,000 a year per kid of savings. Cause they're the kids too. And they're about to have another one in the next year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot more than you realize, but I also think sometimes too, like when financial planners or even people think about college, they think like the only way to help pay for college is I have to have this lump sum of money before they get there. And there's a lot of people who start too late to make that a reality and they have to give up a lot versus like, well, what happens if I try to fund as much as I can, they graduate and then I split their student loan payments with them. Hey, that's going to be 400 bucks a month. I'll help pay 200 of that for you for 10 years as you pay it off. Like there are other ways to get creative and help other than I've been saving since you were zero. Now I have enough money because I've had 18 years of investing. And so people think that, and then they think they completely failed and there's no other solution or no other things to do. But it's like, not your kids are out of your house. You're probably spending 200 bucks of groceries on them a month. Like you can just flip that money over there to help them in a different way. And then also you could put it on them and say, Hey, this is all we're going to give you. We're going to help. And then afterwards you're be like, Hey, I reward you for doing, you worked really hard. You wanted to make this reality. You didn't mess around. I'm going to help pay for this now after too, because I saw how serious it was. And then, or if they are like, I didn't care about college. They messed around, didn't get good grades, did, you know, just went there to party. And then you're kind of like, well, Hey, you got to learn your own lessons. Like that, what that's not worth the money that I paid because you didn't use it. Well, you know, I don't know if that's always the best answer, but I know some parents think about it that way of like, I want to put the responsibility on you and reward you if you handle that well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's highly nuanced with like dispositions toward money, available money. The only, the only two principles I hold true that I think hold true regardless of the situation. Uh, one is more about the, the, the tax implications. Um, if people say like, what if I overfund the 529 plan? I mean, I guess there's a chance that you could do that. Um, yeah. 
but the impact is fairly negligible because you're not going to get penalized except for a 10% fee, you know, 10% tax for taking money out of a 529 and using it for non-education purposes. But that's after you've exhausted the other options of like changing the beneficiary to someone else in the family. Um, and if so, if you have other kids, like there's some flexibility there, but worst case scenario, having invested on a tax protected level, you know, the, this money, and now you have to pay 10% to get it out. It's like, well, don't you, have, you have income taxes too, right? No. Cause it's not tax deduct. There's no tax deduction for the contribution. Oh, I mean, it depends on the, Oh really? I thought it was, well, whatever, either way. But then like, how do you handle that in states? Like, like I'm running into it with Florida, like, Hey, you have no income tax and there's no state tax deduction. And now you also think college is going to look different. Like for, for a lot of my clients, like we use the 529 for the max benefit it'll get you in the state. So Indiana, you can put 5,000 per year, you get a 20% tax credit. So you get a thousand dollars back instantly. That's a better return than you're going to expect in the market anyways. Plus you have, you know, the tax-free growth and then free on college. So we do that. But then above and beyond that, I normally go taxable for that, for the reason of flexibility. What flexibility? Flexibility of like, if they don't go to college, then you don't, you don't have any penalties at all. Cause like, I mean, I bet if you did the math, the 10% penalty in the taxable probably wouldn't be very different. Plus a lot of 529 plans have higher fees. Investment options are less limited. I, I still think they're good. I just think I have some clients who yeah. fully fund through 529 and I have other clients who are like, I don't want to use a 529 because I don't think college is going to be, is going to look the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of right ways to do it. I, I've, I've seen some people, they have, they fund their state's plan because of the tax deduction. But if the plan sucks because the investments are expensive, like I think the one that's backed by American funds, for example, like that one, you know, <laughs> ones like that. It's like, cause their advisors sold. I'm anti-American funds. I'll throw it on here. Right <laughs> <laughs> um, I, they're just, you know, if, if it's, if it's in a state like that, then you can look at other plans potentially that are just like the, the baseline index funds, you know, Vanguard or uh, iShares. Um, those are good, but yeah, I mean, like having a taxable option is good too, because then you have some variability and then um, there is the cash flow option. Like, you know, you get to 17 years old, if the parents have anticipated what their income is going to be, and if they had, if they themselves have student loans that should be gone by then in theory, then they'll have more cash flow to be able to dedicate to ongoing tuition expenses. So there's there's definitely uh, you know a few ways to look at it. Yeah. So question yeah. for you on this. So if you do an UTMA though, right? Like so if you're funding an UTMA for your kids, doesn't that I mean that affects FAFSA, like the amount of money you're gonna get, right? So a lot of times when people do this strategy, they don't put the taxable account in the kid's name. It's still in your name. Mm -hmm. And then you would use that to pay down those loans. But also, I mean, what if, if you're, you know, I have some clients who are making $700,000, like their kids aren't getting FAFSA money anyways. So in that situation, it probably wouldn't matter. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking at needing to get some financial aid, then you want to like, think about these things, like keeping keeping assets out of their kids' names with either taxable accounts in the parent's name or 529 plan accounts. Um, mm -hmm. That certainly is, you know, something worth considering. But yeah, if your income is 
so high and your ability to save is so high that you don't even like, can you imagine having, like, I think to myself, like if I, as a parent, like when my son is at the age where he would go to school and we didn't have to do that, forget about it. Like then I don't have to think about it anymore. Um, of course that's ideal. And many can't, can't, mm-hmm. uh, can't achieve that. And I don't even know if I'll get there because who knows what tuition is going to be in 15 years. <laughs> yeah, 5.5% inflation a year. <laughs> that's true. I mean, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, cool. Any, any other thoughts that you have on this? Um, on like college savings for parents? College savings, like deciding whether you pursue your passion and, or, or what do you know? What... Well, one thing I want to, is it all right if I share my screen? Yeah, yeah go for it. Yeah. Um, so I think like the, the most important thing for young people to think about is trying to understand what their options are. And so if they are like in the biggest questions that I have, like there's so many, like I've been getting more and more questions from people who are in undergrad and they're not even going into medicine. They just like, they've got questions about their debt and what these income driven repayment plans are. Um, and there are four of them. Um, the two that I won't talk about is ICR and IBR because I, they're just not as utilizable. Um, I don't know if that's a word. Anyway, I just made it <laughs> up. Um, but pay as you earn and revised pay as you earn are the two primary choices. And I just wanted to run through what those primary benefits are. Yeah, this is um, great. So um, pay as you earn is... Uh, they're both based on, you know, 10% of your discretionary income, like we had talked about earlier. So the payments will vary depending on your income. Um, Forgiveness. Now this is not PSLF. PSLF is a 10 year loan forgiveness program that requires you to be on either pay, revised pay as you earn, IBR, ICR, as well as working for a nonprofit organization full-time or for the government full-time. The pay as you earn and revised pay as you earn repayment plans themselves are also loan forgiveness programs, but they are longer. Pay is 20 years long for both undergrad and graduate loans. It can make sense. Like even if you're not working for a nonprofit, like that therapist that I mentioned to you or um, social worker, you know, you know, her income is 35,000, but like, suppose she worked for a a for-profit for 45,000. She could, she could potentially get forgiveness through pay, but it's 20 years long. So you got to run the numbers to see if it makes sense. So is, on this forgiveness, though, is it taxable, the, the, the amount that's forgiven? Right now, it is not. But yeah. it's, it's, really, it's really stupid because um, what happened with the, the, the tax law that was passed last spring in 2021, it put the tax bomb implication on hold until, I believe, 2026. So it was kind a couple of years ago? Say again? So before that, though, it was taxable? Right. But, okay, it, but it's set to expire. The, the, ta- like the tax burden uh, avoidance is set to expire in 2026, which is long before anybody <laughs> will even be eligible for this. So basically it is taxable. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So, but like there's people saying like, well, because they put it in temporarily, maybe they'll make it permanent. Um, <clears throat> and what that means though, uh, the tax bomb of pay and revised pays you earn, if you go out that far and utilize these <clears throat> is um, like if the loan forgiveness amount is supposed to be like $100,000, you will get a tax. It'll, it's like, you'll get a 1099 for a hundred thousand dollars 
from the government be like, hey, like you got this forgiven. And so that is imputed to you as yeah. income. It's yep. like a phantom tax because you never got the money. You just got you just got it off your balance sheet. The debt's gone, which is great. But now you got to come up with like, depending on your income, twenty five, thirty five thousand dollars. Yeah. Tax bill. So you have to like save up in the meantime. Um, another unique aspect of pay as you earn is that if you are married, your partner's income won't affect your payment unless you file a joint tax return. So now you have like some tax planning decisions to make because when you file separately, you cannot, uh, you not, you can't claim all the uh, like the kid tax credits that you normally get if you're married and you have kids. Um, I think like if you're like if you're married and you have no kids, the tax ramifications of filing separately are not as substantial, but you need to run the numbers and see like, what, what does my tax bill look like each year by filing separately versus jointly? And the reason why this matters is because if your partner earns, say your partner earns like $60,000, whatever your payment is based on that 10%, that is going to be increased by $6,000 because whatever amounts you were required to pay, now they're gonna tack on your partner's income and 10% of that is gonna be paid. So that would increase your payment by another $500 per month by filing jointly. So then you have to compare that cost against the cost of filing separately because the tax, how much you owe or what your refund is, is gonna be different depending on whether you file separately or whether you file jointly. Um, and then the last bit is that for the first three years after you graduate and you're like on this, your the portion of your loans that are subsidized, which for most people is not a substantial portion of your loans, but 100% of interest that you do not pay gets forgiven. So what that means is like, say say you make $50,000 uh, $50, a year, you're single, just for ease of example, the discretionary income reduction is 20,000, so you're at 30,000, 10% of that is $3,000 per year. But let's say you have $100,000 in debt. That's if you're at a if you're at six and a half percent interest, that's $6,500. So you have $3,500 in interest that you did not pay because your pay your PAYE income driven or payment plan amount was only 35. What did I say? 3000. Yeah. Um, so you have $3,500 in interest that's accumulating for the first three years, the portion of that interest that comes from your subsidized loans, which let's say is a third of it, would be forgiven. So let's say it knocks out like $1,100 in interest. So there's a minor benefit there. Hmm. The, the main benefit of pay is that if you're married and your partner earns a substantial income and you're trying to achieve loan forgiveness, either through the 20 years or through the 10 year PSLF, then filing separately may be wise because the lower, the less you pay toward your debt, the more will be forgiven at the end. But if you file jointly, or if you pick one of the other repayment plans then your partner's income will be included and you'll be paying more. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, and I might have missed it, but these are all for just federal loans, right? Like someone with private couldn't get on pay or repay. That is correct. Yeah, and once you once you refinance to like a private lender, you cannot go back to federal loans. Yeah. So if you do that, you forego PSLF, you forego these income-driven repayment plans. Mm -hmm. um, revised pays your earn, which is this next slide, is same thing, ten percent. Um, the forgiveness is 20 or 25 years. It's 25 years if we're talking about graduate loans. And then repay does not have that tax filing flexibility. It doesn't matter if you file jointly or separately with your partner. 
their income will be counted in the payment. But the interest subsidies are better. It's the same thing with subsidized loans. The first three years, 100% of unpaid interest is forgiven. But for unsubsidized loans, it's 50% perpetually. And for subsidized loans, it is 50% starting in year four perpetually. So if your aim is to ultimately get your debt paid off, but you also want to keep yourself on the track to potentially go for public service loan forgiveness, maybe you'll go for it, maybe you won't, this is a good option. But it will bump up your payment if you're married. So you have to keep that in mind. Um, and then last but not least is just this bit about uh, the PSLF requirements, which is that you have to be employed by the US federal, state, local, or tribal government or a nonprofit. You have to work full-time, which their definition is 30 hours a week or whatever your employer requires. You have to have direct federal loans or consolidate from other federal loans into a direct loan. That has to do with the PSLF waiver news, which came out last fall. People that graduated prior to 2009 were on what's called the federal family education loans, which they appear to be privatized, but they are guaranteed and backed by the US government. They are federal loans and were previously not qualifying them for PSLF, but now they are. And so a lot of people are consolidating those other federal student loans into a direct loan in order to get on the PSLF track. Uh, you have to repay, repay your loans under one of these IDRs, and then they have to be 120 <coughs> Nevertheless, this is a lot of detail. And the whole point of why I'm sharing this, like I hope that people read this and that it's beneficial to them, but um, you need to read the details. You need to understand the implications <coughs> of our debt decisions and try to learn before we decide to take on debt. And for those 120 payments on the PSLF, all the stuff that happened over the past couple of years when it's paused, that's been counting towards that 122, right? That is correct. Yeah, even though it's been $0 going out, um, if you were at least six months, from the point at which you were at least six months out of college, the payments started to count. If you were working for a nonprofit organization full-time and you had picked an income-driven repayment plan. And that has been very confusing because a lot of students or graduates, they contact their loan servicer. They say, I want to pick an income-driven repayment plan. They're like, well, we're on a pause, so we're not doing that. And they're like, well, does it count? Does it not? And it will ultimately count, but you have to like, you have to certify your income with your employer. And I'm encouraging people to do that so that they can start getting them counted so that they can have them tabulated because uh, a lot of this is about organization and good record keeping. Mm -hmm. And have you ever seen anyone like pursue PSLF and then like a couple of years, they like maybe didn't like the nonprofit or government place they're working for and then just like completely hopped off? Like, is that kind of normal or once, once um, people are in, they just go all in? Uh, I have seen a couple of people do that. Um, mainly though, it, I've seen, I've seen it primarily while uh, physicians are still in training, which for them is kind of like, they have this time period where whether their training is three years or five or seven or nine, they're going to stay on these income driven repayment plans anyway. So they kind of just have like this holding pattern where they're going to decide what are they going to do after they're done with training. Um, I haven't seen, I, you know, I've, I've interacted with and helped a number of people who are not in medicine who go for PSLF. And I haven't seen them change their mind uh, because they tend to be in the school systems or, um, you know, they're working for like their, their job <clears throat> is in the nonprofit environment anyway. And so it tends to be 
it tends to work. Like they kind of thought they're like, well, this is a good track that I want to stay on. But I will say that if you, because it requires that 10 year commitment and you could stop, you could change your mind for many reasons. It's important to have a plan B because while you're, what really sucks about the PSLF and I hate it as a planner is because while you're pursuing it, if it is an, if it is an appealing strategy to go for PSLF, it means that you have a lot of debt and that you are paying less than the interest accumulation. It's almost like purposely letting credit card debt balloon. You're just like, yeah, I'm just going to let it run. If you do that, it's going to be bigger. And that, that's, that's the same situation with loans. If you're, if you're on an income-driven repayment plan and you could have chosen a more aggressive loan payoff, but you decided that it was pragmatic for you to go for PSLF, but then for some reason it changes, your loan is going to be more and you're going to have to end up paying more back yeah. than you would have before. So that really ticks me off. Like, but there's no way around it. Like, and some people they're like, well, this is, I get, I get the conflict, but you just have to recognize the pros and cons of the choice and like what the impact will be uh, if, you know, something changes. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be fun to feel trapped, you know, it's stuck where I, I want to leave my job, but I did this, but sometimes, you know, that's the reality of, of what happens, but I can, I can empathize with that being a tough spot to be in, but well, cool, man. Anything else that you want to add before uh, we wrap this up? Uh, no, I mean, you guys keep doing what you're doing. I feel like you're making a, a real positive impact on a lot of people's lives. So keep it up. It was nice to talk to you all. Yeah. Same with you. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Um, hope you guys found this helpful. Definitely go follow Tyler. He's one of the best, you know, Twitter accounts to follow. Um, and we will see you back next week. 